Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. The reading this morning comes from Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 to chapter 2 verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's pray together once more. So, Father, we come to your word this morning both sinners and sufferers. And we ask for your great mercy. We ask for your grace. We ask for your spirit to speak to us through your word in ways that we desperately need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon was on top of the world. He'd made it. At 22, imagine that, 22. What were you doing at 22? Well, Spurgeon was the most well-known preacher in the largest church building, preaching to the largest crowds anywhere in mid-19th century uh, London. He'd made it. He was newly married. He was wading diaper deep into the first month of parenting with his new twin boys and a house full of unpacked boxes. Perhaps it was his being on top of the world that made what he was about to experience such a tragic and painful coming back to reality. So one October Sunday, mid-sermon, a prankster yells in this crowd of thousands, fire! And the ensuing stampede left seven people dead and 28 seriously injured. Preaching only two weeks after the tragedy, Spurgeon uh, openly confessed to his congregation, saying this, 
I, I almost regret this morning that I ventured to occupy this pulpit. Because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe. But on coming back to the same spot again, and more especially, standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning. I have been utterly unable to study. O Spirit of God, Spurgeon prayed, magnify thy strength in thy servant's weakness and enable him to honor his Lord even when his soul is cast down within him. Spurgeon's ensuing depression, but what became a lifelong struggle, was described by times by his wife Susanna as deep and violent. Deep and violent. For a while after the tragedy, this great preacher, the very sight of the Bible made Spurgeon cry, made him weep. Charles knew life in the pit, life in the grave. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you do too. Maybe it's not circumstance that has brought you low this morning, but something else. Maybe this morning the thought of reading your Bible or gathering with the church or even God himself makes you cry is, is unbearable. So you're here, but hesitatingly so, uncertainly so, ready to run out at a moment's notice. This morning we discovered that the prophet Jonah, after all his running, has finally hit rock bottom. Rock bottom. He, like some of you, or if not you, then definitely like somebody you love, is in the belly of the grave. And the question this morning is, what hope do we have in such a hopeless place? What, what, what hope? What real, real hope do we have in such a terrible place? Let, let me show us three things this morning in our text. First, a grave. Second, a prayer. Third, a hope. First, a grave. The narrative flow of Jonah that we've been going through for the past few weeks is abruptly interrupted today with this prayer, with this psalm, with, with, with this poem. It's a prayer prayed by Jonah from the belly of the fish. Well, how did Jonah get to this watery grave? How did he arrive here? Well, verse 3 says this. Jonah tells us how he got here. He says this. For you, talking to God, you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. It's the language of, of the netherworld, of the underworld. All your waves, God, and your billows, they passed over me. So Jonah rightly recognizes what we, the reader, have seen all along, right? That is, it is God's sovereign hand that brought him to the grave. It was God who brought the storm, God who made the lots land on Jonah, God who brought the fish, appointed the fish to swallow Jonah up. Yet for all the truth in what Jonah is saying theologically, something is off, isn't it? Something isn't quite right. 
Maybe you heard this when, when Cam was reading, but one of the most shocking things about this prayer from the grave is that not once does Jonah take responsibility. Not once. Not once does Jonah see his own agency, his own culpability in where he finds himself. Jonah demonstrates a remarkable lack of self-awareness. It's remarkable. I'm going to nuance this in a moment, so, so stick with me. But, but we should not miss the, the primary reason, the reason why Jonah is in this watery grave of despair. It's because, see this, Christ City, of Jonah's sin. It's because, Christ City, of Jonah's rebellion. So some of us this morning are in distress because you've turned from the giver of peace and gone your own way. And instead of taking responsibility, you've begun to point fingers at everybody else. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's those people. The, the impulse to blame shift, though seeing something of a resurgence in our therapeutic culture, is not a new impulse. It's not a new impulse. Adam blames his banishment from the garden on his wife Eve. It was the woman who, who, who did it, not, not me, God. Jonah blames God for his watery grave, just as I blame my neighbors, my city, my circumstances, uh, my wife, my kids, for my sins of impatience and anger and lust. And while each of those things can form us and shape us and indeed impact us, the Bible speaks of a time when, Romans 14, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so as we come this morning in our own places of despair, respectfully consider is the idea that you live in a grave that you've dug yourself. Some of us live in a pit hollowed out by our own hands. Is that you? Is that you this morning? It could be, however, that you arrived in the grave another way. For as Tim Keller, the pastor, author, makes clear, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, our sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. While every sin will bring you into difficulty, not every difficulty is a result of your sin. Some of us this morning are suffering due to the sins of another. And the story of, a jo of Jonah is a great example of that, right? The sailors in our story are uh, in this storm, in the chaos, not because of what they've done, but simply because they share a boat, they share proximity with Jonah. They're suffering for, for Jonah's sin, for, for, for Jonah's disobedience. What's more, we should nuance this further. Some of us are, in fact, predisposed in our bodies, our personalities, our wiring, if you want to say it like that, to bouts of depression. An affliction that testifies to not just a fallen and broken world, but to our bodies remaining until Christ returns under the curse of sin. In one sermon, Spurgeon said this, 
I would not blame all those who are much given to fear, for in some it is rather their disease than their sin, more their misfortune than their fault. Whatever the reason we're in the grave this morning, the, the experience of being in the pit, and if you know it, you know it, can feel eerily similar. It can feel like hell, feel like separation from God himself. And this is the language that Jonah invokes in verse 5. He says, the waters, picture this, closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. At the roots of the mountain, Jonah says. This is the opposite of the, the mountaintop high. Jonah's done a sort of anti-pilgrimage into Sheol itself, into hell, into the land of the dead. And where, where can he go? Where can he turn? Look with me now at our second point. A prayer. A grave, now a prayer. While there are many things wrong with Jonah's prayer this morning, and we're going to see what those wrong things are. It's not a perfect prayer by any stretch of the imagination. We should not miss the fact that he does indeed pray. Jonah prays. In his distress, he does not dig deep. He does not resign himself to a hopeless situation. He Praise. Verse 1, look in your Bibles. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And then verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Jonah prayed, and he says, my prayer came to you, O Lord. It is not only the looking outside of ourselves that matters when we're in the pit, but also to whom we look in these lowest moments, in these deepest despairs. Jonah says his prayers came to God's holy temple. And already in Jonah, if you've been with us so far, we've seen a contrast not only between Jonah and the pagans, but between Jonah's God, Yahweh, the one true God, and the many and varied pagan deities. See, in, in verse 5 of chapter 1, when the storm comes, it says, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And when the captain comes to wake up Jonah, he, he's hoping to increase his odds of survival by just involving another regional deity. And so he says in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Let, add him to our pantheon of gods. Just call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And of course, as Jonah has shown us, his book has shown us, these gods are powerless. They are impotent not only against the storm, but also now to rescue Jonah from his watery grave. And so he says, those who pay regard, verse 8, 
to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Again, we're going to see in a moment, there are some things that are wrong with Jonah's prayer. It's not a great prayer. But theologically speaking, textbook speaking, Jonah is bang on. He's right. The gods have not answered, they will not answer, and they cannot take us out of the pit. They cannot then, and they cannot now. Idols send us down, never bring us up. Idols always lead to death, never to life. It is their nature. And we see this in Jonah. Of course, it's his idolatry of nation of ethnicity that got him into the pit in the first place. And so here's why, if you're not convinced, here's why we need to call out to God in prayer. If it wasn't idolatry that brought you to the grave, idolatry is where we'll turn when we're in the grave. If it wasn't idolatry that brought you to the pit, idolatry is where we're most quickly to go when we're in the pit. And so we'll do things like this. We'll look to substance for salvation. I'm despairing, give me another drink, give me another hit. We will look to other people for salvation. If they just stay with me and they don't move and they don't leave and everything remains the same in my friend group, then, then I'm good. We'll look to TikTok and pop psychology for salvation. I heard this new thing. Did you hear this new thing? Again and again, the new thing. And if you weren't an idolater before, the grave will make you one. Meaning, here's what this means. One of the worst pieces of advice you can give to someone who is depressed, who is in the grave, who is in the pit, is trust your heart. Believe in yourself. You can do it. You can do it. Recently, I read this book. It's called The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. I won a Pulitzer Prize, and so apparently that's important, so I read it. I want to be important, so I read it, the book. And, and the book is about a boy named Theo, uh, who, spoiler alert, loses his mother in a tragic way. In a, in a tragic way. It's early on in the book, so I'm not, I'm not really ruining the book for you. But now I'm going to ruin it. He spends most of the book depressed and despondent and like going from thing to thing to, to, to fill this void in his life, looking for this existential meaning and purpose, eventually going into drugs and eventually into the criminal underworld. And Theo, this character, has lived by this modern mantra, right? Following his heart into desire after desire, hoping to achieve some sort of self-discovery, some sort of revelation. Yet as the novel comes to a close, Theo reflects on where his decisions have left him. And he begins to question the shared morality of our age. Again, Tart is writing not as a Christian, not as someone who worships the Lord, but just is reflecting on where we're at morally speaking. And so in the voice of Theo, Tart writes these words. From William Blake to Lady Gaga, from Rousseau to Rumi, to Tosca to Mr. Rogers, it's a curiously uniform message, accepted from high to low. When in doubt, what to do? How do we know what's right for us? Every shrink, 
Every career counselor, every Disney princess knows the answer. Be yourself. Follow your heart. And then Tart writes this. Only here's what I really, really want someone to explain to me. What if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? What if the heart, for its own unfathomable reasons, leads one willfully and in a cloud of unspeakable radiance away from the health, domesticity, civic responsibility, and strong social connections, and all the blandly held common virtues, and instead straight towards a beautiful flare of ruin, self-immolation, disaster. Is Kitsy right? Theo asks. Then he says, if your deepest self is singing and coaxing you straight toward the bonfire, is it better to turn away? Let me invite you this morning, whether you know Jesus or not, to turn to Jesus. To, to trust in Jesus, to feel the freedom and the relief and the release of doubting your own heart and your own desires and trusting in the God who loves you and who came for you. When you turn to Jesus, it does not need to be in this fake or pretentious or triumphalistic praise. The Bible is full of people coming with God to prayers out of despair. In fact, Jonah, steeped in the Torah as he is, steeped in the Psalter, the Psalms, God's prayer book, is basically in this prayer this morning, basically just stitching together a bunch of Psalms. He's just boring from God's prayer book, making his own lament, his own cry, his, his own help. Go to God with everything. God can take everything. He, he's not some sensitive God who you have to kind of couch your language with. Right? Kind of go to apprehensively. I don't want to offend you. I don't want to bother you. But here are maybe these little problems I have. God's not like that. He, he, he's not some, some genie who only responds when the right words are uttered in the right way at the right time. No. In verse 9 it says, look there, Jonah 2 verse 9. The center of this prayer Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. God is eager through his son Jesus to hear your prayer, accept your prayer, and answer your cry to be saved. That's who he is. That's who he's always been. If you've never prayed before, hear this. There is no wrong way to pray. Just pray. And God loves to answer half-hearted confused, misdirected, awkward prayers with his perfect grace. How do we know this? Because that's what he does in our text this morning. Jonah's prayer, let me put this in a fancy way, it stinks. It stinks. Like it's theologically true, but the surrounding narrative tells us he doesn't actually believe it. It stinks. Let me show you a few things. In addition to never seeing his own responsibility, his own sin in this prayer, jo Jonah also can't help but highlight his role in his deliverance. So he says in verse 7, he says, when my life was fainting away, what, what happened? Where, where's the turning point? 
I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. While subtle, it's telling that instead of saying, the Lord remembered me, Jonah says, I remembered the Lord. And we can think back to another instance of a flood. The story in Genesis of Noah and his family. They are adrift amidst the chaos of a flooded world. And there, in Genesis 8, verse 1, noticeably different, it says, but God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. Second, notice that Jonah's prayer is still littered with that self-righteous smugness we've seen thus far. Verses 8 and 9, though true, come across as quite judgmental, don't they? Look at verse 8 and 9 again. Jonah says, those people, it's a great way to start, those people who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay, and then salvation belongs to the Lord. So who's Jonah talking about? Who are those people to Jonah? Well, if you've been following along in our story, those people are clearly those pagan sailors. Those pagan sailors. Those sailors, and here's the irony, here's the humor in our text, who unbeknownst to Jonah have turned and begun to worship Yahweh. <laughs> begun to serve him. They have not forsaken their hope of tasting his love. They, by God's grace, are experiencing God's love. Experiencing his power. Before Jonah sacrificed, they sacrificed sacrifices. Before Jonah made a vow, they vowed vows. And, and before Jonah tasted salvation, they were already glorying in the salvation of the Lord. One commentator calls Jonah's prayer here the peak of distortion and arrogance. Another says this is at best a flattering comparison. Still another sees Jonah using the sailors as merely a foil for his own piety and devotion. Jonah's prayer kind of stinks. It's not great. His repentance is half-hearted. His motives are mixed. But listen... What happens next in our story reminds us that it is not the strength or the authenticity of our repentance or our prayers which saves us. It's the strength of our God who saves us. Jonah's grip on God is weak. His grip on reality is weak. But God's grip on Jonah is strong. Third point, a hope. A grave, a prayer, a hope. God, Jonah says, answered his cry of distress. His prayer came to him into his holy temple. And the response of God could not be more dramatic and also hilarious. Verse 10, did you see that? And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's just funny. It could have said, and, and the fish placed Jonah out on dry land, Right? Or, you know, Jonah, like, descended, like, the tongue became, like, stairs, like, in a Disney movie, right? And he walked down the stairs onto the dry land. But it says, importantly, specifically, the fish vomited Jonah 
out upon the dry land. Repentance is a humbling experience, isn't it? Now, I would be speaking both untruthfully and unhelpfully to suggest to you this morning that each of our graves, each of our pits, are but a simple prayer away. That we can just get out of them with a quick get-out-of-jail-free card of just turning to the Lord and we're done. You know that's not true. I know that's not true. We know that's not true. The Bible tells us that God has us persist in sorrows and struggles, sometimes for a lifetime, to do many things in us. For example, just one thing he's doing, in our sorrow, he makes us wise. Ecclesiastes 7 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. One author, Zach Eswine, he, he says this, In this fallen world, sadness is an act of sanity. Our tears, the testimony of the same. I, I was talking to a friend this week, and he just found himself, just like moment by moment this past week, just overcome with the war in the Middle East. Just weeping. And who's more sane? Me who stands over here stoically and coldly, indifferently to the troubles of others, or the one who weeps at what is surely pure evil? Who, who's more sane? God makes us wise in our sorrows. What else does he do? Well, for example, in our sorrows... He equips us to serve other sad people. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that for this reason, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which, with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why does God have you going through that pit, going through that thing? Because someday in the future you're going to come alongside someone and say, me too. Like, I know this. I've been there. What else is he doing? Well, for example, in our sorrow, he is prying our death grip off of the things of this world, off of our idols, off of the things that we love over and above him. In Psalm 39, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. God does a million things with our sadness. Some we see now, some we can point to and say, that's what he's doing now, and some will only see at Jesus' return. But as the book of Jonah shows us, more generally speaking, God is purposing all our sorrow for our good. God does not promise us the absence of depression, the absence of melancholy in this life. If you've been sold to Christianity that is all happy-go-lucky, run. Run, run, run. That is not the experience of the Bible. That is not the experience of the Christian. If it's all up and to the right, run. That is not the testimony of Scripture. Rather, God intends to use our sorrows, purpose our sorrows, make meaningful our sorrows, to draw us closer to him, to be with him, 
Consider for a moment this very curious, very small, perhaps even overlooked occurrence in our text this morning. In verse 17, have your Bibles open. In verse 17 it says, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now Jonah 2 verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So these sentences are very similar, but importantly in the Hebrew very, very different. Here's what happens. The word for fish in Jonah 2.1 is, is feminine. And it switches from 117 from the masculine to 21 to the feminine. And so here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Jonah is in the belly. That's obvious. Jonah's in the tomb. That's obvious. He's in the pit. That's obvious. But what we don't see is that that tomb for Jonah is in fact a womb. It is a place of new birth. A place of recreation. What we see only as bad, only as evil, God takes. And he says, this is a womb. This is the place of maternal care for you. This is the place of nurturing for you. I'm going to grow you in and through this. He's using the fish to make Jonah humble, to force Jonah for the first time, shockingly, in this whole book, to cry out to God in prayer. That goes from a tomb to a womb. And God is doing the same thing today. We see this most clearly in the sending of his son Jesus. Only Jesus, of all the religious and spiritual leaders on offer, only Jesus is the God who joins us in the belly of the fish. Only Jesus. In his incarnation, Jesus says, Scooch over. I'm coming in. Make room. How can we not be but encouraged by that? Spurgeon also found great comfort in this truth. And he said this. He said, personally, I also bear witness that it has been to me in seasons of great pain, superlatively comfortable to know that in every pang which racks his people, hear this, the Lord Jesus has a fellow feeling. We are not alone, for one like unto the Son of Man walks the furnace with us. Jesus cried at death. Jesus experienced the anguish of abandonment. He felt the sting of betrayal. Isaiah says that he was a man of sorrows. But it is unnecessarily bleak to reflect only on his life, to reflect only on his death. We must hold the whole story together. Paul says in Philippians 2, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we've trusted in Jesus if his story is ours, if we're in him, united to him, then to quote Zach Eswine again, the same heavenly father who picked up his son out of the muck and misery and mistreatment can do the same for us. 
If you don't believe me this morning, or you're struggling to believe me this morning, let me believe for you. Borrow the faith of the one who brought you on their arm. Borrow the faith of your spouse or your sibling or your parent or your friend who has been praying for you day by day, moment by moment. Turn to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus from your grave. Remind that it's not in the strength or the elegance or the completeness of your prayers. That's not what saves you, but Jesus, the one who hears, saves you. Turn to Jesus. See the hope that is found in Jesus this morning. Jesus who sympathizes. Jesus who knows. But also our Jesus who defeated the grave. Defeated the grave. Jonah 2 verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. God never stopped being Jonah's God. Jonah was faithless. God was faithful. Jonah was shaky. God was firm. Jonah was half-hearted, but God was all in on his pursuit of Jonah. Do not believe the lie this morning that rescue is found within. That rescue is found internally. Look outside yourself. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Turn to Jesus. Receive his faithful love. Would you stand with me this morning? As I invite you to stand this morning, we're going to do things a little bit differently. In a moment, I'm going to pray. But before I do, I want to invite you to take any posture you'd like in this time of response. Take any posture you'd like. And perhaps you want to go on your knees and cry out to the Lord in repentance. Get on your knees. Perhaps you've got questions for God that have been left unsaid, unprayed. Let me assure you, God can handle them. He can handle them. Perhaps you want to jump and clap because God has brought your life out of the pit or the life of someone you love out of the pit. Do that. We respond to God's word with our whole bodies, with all of us, with all of us. Also, hear this. I hope you see this morning that from Jonah 2, what you did not receive was an exhaustive treatment on depression or melancholy from the scriptures. If you'd like to talk further, maybe even over a cup of coffee or tea, I'd love to do that with you. Also, I want to remind you that as a church, we have a fantastic biblical counseling program that we run here. You can go on our website to find out more about that. Let me commend that to you. Or if you prefer, I know a number of trusted guides and counselors I'd love to refer you to. We're going to respond now in four ways. We're going to give. Give generously, give joyously as you do, Christ City. If you're new or visiting, don't worry about that. Uh, if you'd like to receive prayer this morning, Stefan's at the back, lives at the back. They would love to pray with you or for you this morning. The person who brought you would love to pray with you and for you. Go and be ministered to by the, by the people of God this morning. We're going to, of course, sing, but then we'll take the Lord's Supper. You'll come down the aisle, either one, take the bread, take the juice, and you'll be reminded that our God did not stay distant from us. He entered our sorrow. He entered our pain. He knows what it is to be human. 
And we see that this morning in the bread and in the juice. And we're reminded of that this morning. If you trust in Jesus, this meal is for you. If you don't trust in Jesus, it's not for you. But we'd ask really simply that you put your faith in Jesus this morning. That you turn to him in your pit, in your grave, and find life everlasting. Would you pray with me? Bow your head. King Jesus, we thank you that you came low so that we may be brought up out of our pit and into new life with you. And yet, Lord, we still feel the effects of this fallen world in our fallen bodies, with our fallen desires. And so we need your help. Would you meet us, Lord? Would we see you, Jesus, climbing into the fish with us, asking us to scooch over? Would we see your triumph in your resurrection? And would we hold out hope, hope against hope, that you are good and that you love us? And what awaits us in eternity is not death, but life eternal. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.